It's nice to see everybody here today. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Neil. I'm the pastor here at Coast. Um, for newcomers and regulars alike, we've got a very special service. Uh, we, I'm not going to be preaching today, so I'm happy about that because I've got jet lag from Haiti. I uh, just got back from Haiti, had a really good trip. I'll, I'll tell more about it next week. We've got enough going on this week. But uh, um, today, we're not going to be doing our regular service. We're going to have a very special and unique service. Today is Elder Ordination Sunday. And right now, the ushers are going to come forward, and they're going to be passing out some questions and a little index card for all of you to review. And these questions, uh, you should know, are the same questions that David Bacon and Dan Livingston have been studying for the past six months. Uh, we ordain elders here at Coast Bible Church. Uh, we believe that it is important to uh, see that, that our elders, our spiritual shepherds of the church, have sufficiently trained for the work of the ministry. And so we put them through a training uh, period of both character questions, ministry questions, pastoral uh, concerns, and theological and biblical questions. And so the sheets that you're about to receive represent those questions. Some 80 or so questions that these men have prepared for. And on your index card, I'm going to ask that you write down one of the question numbers that you might want to ask these men as they stand before the congregation and, uh, and receive uh, questions from the audience. You're also welcome to ask a question that's not on that list, um, but I, I do recommend that you consider uh, selecting one from that list that they have prepared and studied for. Six months of training, and today, uh, it, as our service um, continues, we're going to bring forth David Bacon and Dan Livingston to stand before you and to stand before the Lord and to demonstrate their fitness to be a spiritual shepherd of the church. So as, you, as, you, uh, as we start this service... Please uh, look over some of those questions and jot down on the index card a question that might be of interest to you. And uh, we'll be able to ask some questions of them in just a few moments. You know, the scriptures say, do not lay hands hastily on anyone. And that's what we're doing here. We're not laying hands hastily on someone. When we ordain someone, when we lay hands on them and send them out into the work of the ministry, particularly with respect to leading a church, um, it's, a, it's an important thing. And uh, we, we, we've asked them to train for this moment, and they have. And I know that today uh, you're going to be able to hear from them, ask questions of them, and I believe uh, the Lord is going to guide them and bring to remembrance all the things that they've studied. I want to ask these guys just a, a simple opener question like we did last time, a couple of years ago with Lloyd and Lou. Uh, we asked them some basic questions just to you know, get, get the flow of things going. So Dave, I'm going to start with you. Dave, what is your favorite color? Dave, what is your favorite color? Go ahead and grab the microphone there, Dave. Favorite color? Blue. Blue. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, good answer. Good answer. And Dan, uh, your easy question. Could you explain the Nephilim in Genesis 6, identifying whether or not they are angels or men, and compare and contrast the different viewpoints on it? My favorite color is angel red. <laughs> good answer. Good answer. All right. I remember last time I asked uh, similar questions of Lou and Lloyd there. 
All right, folks. Well, let, let's get started with a, a simple uh, question as well. Dan, why don't you give us your personal testimony in Jesus Christ? How, how did you uh, come to faith in Christ and a little bit about your spiritual journey? Okay. Well, um, I grew up in a Christian home, and uh, I was saved when I was very young, six or seven years old. And, um, you know, I used to think that my testimony was not very exciting and boring because I've known Christ my whole life, and I don't have any great story of how I came to faith. But when I really started to think about it, I realized what a blessing it is that I was able to grow up in a Christian home. And, you know, I, I owe a lot of where I am to my parents, um, the example that they were. I'm starting getting choked up here. <laughs> um, just the faithfulness that they showed to me, um, you know, being very consistent, uh, bringing us to church every Sunday. Um, keeping my brother and I involved in, in just various church activities like Awana, um, Junior Church, um, the high school group. Um, just We were always involved in church. This was a very important place to us. And uh, we actually started coming to Coast in the mid-1970s, maybe 76, Dad? 76. 76, 1976. And I think that the only other family that's been here longer than us, well, Linda's here today. So maybe the Koblitz, but I was going to say Al, Al and Kid Eaton are probably the only family that have been here longer than us. I think Al was here when uh, they broke ground. But, um, you know, besides growing up in a Christian home, also a huge blessing is being in the same church for almost my whole life. I've been here for over 30 years. Um, and so being able to grow up in Awana and youth group, those were huge parts of my development as a Christian and I remember um, the youth group especially. Though that was uh, you know, definitely, definitely a highlight in my life, um, those four years. A uh, lot of great times, learning the word, very fun trips. But you know, I remember Jeff Halcom and the, the teaching that he gave us. Um, and Jeff Halcom was actually the son-in-law of Ridge Ryan who started this church. And I, I vaguely remember Ridge. But um, Jeff was, you know, a huge influence in my life. Um, and a little tidbit about the barn back here. There used to be a house back here with a pool, and they've since torn down the house. But when I was in high school, a few of us, Rick Koblenz, Eric White, and Jeff Halcom, we actually are the ones that thought the barn would be a neat place to um, have a youth facility. And so some of us started renovating the barn, and uh, it was just, it was a neat place to meet. Um, it doesn't have, back then it didn't have a coffee bar and a TV and couches and a stage. It had rats and things like that. But it was, it was you know, it was, it was our own place and it really was somewhere where we uh, enjoyed gathering. Um, but also in high school, I had to make a decision. I realized that... Um, you know, the faith that I thought I knew was something that my parents taught me and I learned at church, but there came a point where I had to decide, was this what I believed or is this what my parents and the church is telling me to believe? And that, those high school years were very instrumental for me. Um, obviously, I came to the point where I, uh, I completely believe that Christ died for my sins and that, uh, that I'm going to heaven, but those were very influential years for me. Um, and after high school is when I met Kristen, and we started, uh, we were going to the college group here at Coast, and we were also going to Grace Community Church, which is in Lake Forest, which is where Kristen's family went. 
and we were going back and forth, and we, we enjoyed both churches, but when we got married, we knew we needed to make a decision about where we were going to continue worshiping. And we just really decided that Arch was right on with his teaching. We really enjoyed Arch's teaching. Um, we had great relationships here, great friends, um, and we just really felt like this is where God wanted us to be. And so we've, we've stuck with it through thick and thin at Coast, and uh, we definitely, there's no place that we'd rather be. Um, that college group that we started out in has changed many times over the years. We've been involved basically the same group for 20 years. It started out as a college group, um, went to being a, a young adults group, and the young marrieds into what it is now, which is Melting Pot. So we've just kind of tagged along the whole time, and we've had great teachers along the way, um, besides Jeff Halcom that I mentioned. Um, Fred Covance, Fred and Linda were very involved with Melting Pot there for a number of years. Um, Fred Eaton's here this morning. Fred was teaching at, at our house um, six or seven years ago, probably, um, and now we've, we've pulled Neil in to do our teaching. So. Yep. Um, we've had just great teaching. Um, and now when I look at where I am now in my life and I look at my kids, it, things have kind of come full circle. My kids are about the age that I was when I came to this church. And, um, you know, I, I look at them being involved in Awana and being involved in, uh, they're often, oh, Justin State, good. They're, they're <laughs> involved in junior church. Um, and really one of my gifts one of my spiritual gifts, I feel like, is, is teaching, but specifically teaching kids um, and mentoring kids. I feel like that's really a gift of mine. I, I have patience, a lot of patience, um, most of the time. Um, but I really feel like that's one place that God has led me to be involved with the kids, mentor the kids in Awana and Junior Church. Um, and I really enjoy working with the kids. I really feel like I can relate with them. And uh, it's just a, really a blessing for me. Um, another highlight with my kids. I know I'm kind of rambling here. No, but if you keep going, uh, yeah, we, uh, it'll end this, in about 45 I, minutes, and you won't have to answer I, any you know questions. I mean, you guys know me. I'm not much of a talker, but I'm kind of rolling now, so I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> I'm an introvert, but maybe, yeah, this will just... Give one more highlight. Continue. I want to Okay, I'm, I'm almost done, actually. Um... <laughs> A few months ago, um, Justin and Brooke were baptized up here, and that was a huge highlight. Um, not only because we know they're saved, but because they made the decision to be baptized. And it wasn't anything that Kristen and I forced them to do. Um, of course, we, we guided them and prompted them, but it was their decision, and they're the ones that actually asked us to be baptized. And that, that's a very proud and gratifying thing for a parent not only to, for your kids to be saved, which is the most important thing, but to see them be baptized. Um, and something that Corey mentioned during that baptism, um, when you were baptizing um, some of the high school kids, you mentioned to them what a blessing it is to grow up in a Christian home. And not only did I get that, but now my kids are receiving that same blessing. Um, and last thing, just the Christian heritage in my family and Kristen's family um, I really feel like the Lord has blessed that because we've, we've tried to walk according to his will. And um, I really feel like the heritage in our family is being blessed by the Lord. Amen. And um, again, growing up in a Christian home is such an amazing blessing. And I'm, I'm so thankful to the Lord that 
that I didn't have to go through some great trial or a tragedy in my life to come to my knees um, for salvation. I, was, I haven't had any, any terrible things happen in my life like that. And I know a lot of people, that's what it takes. And that, if that's what it takes, then that's important for them to be saved. But I didn't have anything like that in my life, and I'm, I'm so thankful for that. Amen. Okay. Amen. Thank you, Dan. Dave, share with us how you came to Christ and a little bit about your spiritual journey. Okay, well, I uh, did not grow up in a Christian home. Um, in fact, uh, my um, experience at church um, as a kid was very limited. We, I can remember my parents uh, dropping us off at church like a handful of times and then picking us up when it was over. I remember sitting on the curb outside the church waiting for them. And, uh, but I do remember, well, I came from a good family, not to say bad about my parents, but... Um, but I do remember a good news club down the street from us when I was like seven or eight years, and I remember learning John 3.16, and I think that probably planted the seed at that point. Good news club, all right. But, uh, but when we, I had a teenage, in my teenage years, I have a twin bro- had a twin brother, I still have a twin brother, but uh, um, we started, uh, we were pretty rebellious kids, and even at the early teens, uh, there was a time when if, we had a nose for trouble, and we were, like I said, we were pretty rebellious. If there was, if there was trouble, chances are the Bacon brothers were, uh, were right in the middle of it. <laughs> but, uh, but at about the time of my sophomore year in high school, a friend of mine uh, down the street invited us to a Bible study. And uh, the man that started this Bible study was uh, just, uh, he owned his own office cleaning business. And he would just clean offices, him and his wife. During the, or in the early in the morning, and they would get off work about one o'clock, and he would just go to the to the park and sit by the high school and watch the kids play. And he got a burden for the kids playing sports, and he decided he went out and started to develop a relationship with the kids. They were just out in the park playing. He would hit them flies and organize games. And as he befriended them, he uh, invited a bunch of the kids over to his house for a Bible study. And uh, that was I was invited to that Bible study. And uh, when I got there, there was about uh, eight or ten kids there. And we would listen to tapes of Christian athletes and Christian coaches give their testimony. Because he knew that, uh, this man Harry, knew that we just were passionate about sports. We were not great athletes, but we were playing all the time, watching sports. And so we heard uh, tapes, testimonies of Christian athletes and coaches. I remember hearing like Tom Landry's testimony hmm. and people like that. And, uh, and through that, he gave us the gospel. And I can remember... Um, now, we went for a few months, and then I can remember one day we were all at the Bible study, and we were all just fooling around. And uh, this man, Harry, felt like we weren't taking it seriously enough, so he just sat us down. He goes, I want all of you guys to sit down, and I want you to tell me what the Lord means to you. And so we went around to each kid at that Bible study, probably ten of us, and uh, they got around to me. And I, uh, I couldn't say anything. I was silent. And I was thinking, and I went home that night, I was thinking about it, and I thought, you know... I really do believe this, and God does mean something. The Lord means something to me, and I want a relationship with him. And I, uh, and I knew that I was a sinner and needed a Savior. And so I prayed to uh, receive Christ that night. And as it turns out, uh, years later, my brother and I were talking, and he received Christ the same night, through yeah. the same instance. Yeah. But so at that point, um, the Bible study really took off. It uh, uh, this man, Harry, he bought us shirts that said Eagle Rock Athletes for Christ because we were at Eagle Rock High School. And so we would wear them every Wednesday and we would, and we'd have them, and then so we kind of publicized the Bible study. 
and then we would, we would have the Bible study at his house. And it grew, and he, he took us, used to take us in an old white panel truck, load all these kids in the truck, and take us down to Church of the Open Door at downtown L.A. And, uh, and so we got involved there, and, and as the men there saw that the Bible study was growing, uh, one of the men there had a big house in Pasadena, and so we, we had the Bible study, we moved it to his house, and he taught it. And it really, the Lord, it was really a great work. The Lord, uh, the Lord really blessed it. And, uh, um, you know, there were up for uh, over 100 people at it at times. I mean, we would get athletes from SC and UCLA to come and speak and give their testimonies. Now, really, a lot of guys came to Christ. But uh, this man, Harry, always really had a heart for the Word. And even though he had never finished high school, he was kind of a, a self-taught scholar. And he would, you know, he would read Dallas Seminary textbooks. And he would, uh, he would buy these books for us, I mean, just young kids. And we would read, uh, we would read them, and he would, to the day he died, he was still buying us books. He died about uh, five years ago. Wow. And every once in a while I would get, Colleen would go to the, um, the mailbox and say, you got another book from Harry? And, uh, and then he would call, I know, I better read it. Because uh, he would be calling to make sure that I read it, make sure that I understood it, and uh, clear up any misconceptions I had about it. Good. And so, but he was quite a guy. He died about five years ago, and we had a big funeral for him. All the guys that came to Christ through his, uh, through his ministry it was it was quite a quite a happening. But uh, but one other thing that happened at that time uh, was um, we uh, when I was a senior in high school, we um, met every uh, once a week in our at a friend's house for prayer for our parents. A lot of us had uh, non-Christian parents. And so we would pray for them. And, and my parents at that time, my dad, they respected the fact that it had turned us around. We were, we were no longer getting in all this trouble. And at first, my dad didn't really know how to take it. I mean, he would, uh, he would tell his friends. I remember him later telling me that he would tell his friends. He would laugh. He'd go, my kids, I can't believe it. They're carrying Bibles around. They're going to church. It's just, it floored him. And, uh, but, you know, he, I remember him uh, bringing his friends' kids over to talk to us, saying, uh, you know, tell him his friends' kids were getting in trouble and say, tell him about that thing that you guys do. And so, uh, so he respected the change in our life. He felt that if it could turn us around, it, was, it could turn anybody around. But, uh, but we prayed and just, my dad was one of those guys that, uh, that the Lord just really sought. And uh, everybody he knew, it seemed like Christians were always coming into contact with him. He, uh, our youth pastor at Church of the Open Door just one day walked into my dad's office. And my dad recognized the name and said, uh, he said, oh, my, my kids must have sent you. And the guy, the guy goes, no, who are your kids? I just came here to buy insurance. And so they developed a relationship, and he started sharing with my dad. And a number of different uh, things happened. And I remember my dad uh, calling me up into his room one day and saying, uh, you know, I was driving down the street, and I just couldn't take it anymore. I pulled over to the side of the road, and I received Christ. And it was really, uh, really a big moment. And, uh, Amen. But even he went on to be an elder at his church. In fact, I called him and asked him for advice when uh, Glenn called me and asked me to come on the elder board. And so it's really, a, really a big. Uh, the Lord has really blessed our family. That's great. That's great. Thank you, guys. That was wonderful. Well, uh, now Dan, you mentioned uh, a spiritual gift of teaching, teaching kids. And uh, Dave, I want to ask you as well. What, uh, what is, do you think is your spiritual gift, and how do you see yourself using that in the life of the church? Well, I see it as, I mean, there are various places in Scripture where the spiritual gifts are, are listed in, you know, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and, and there are lists, and the one that I relate to is the gift of helps. I kind of see myself as just a servant trying to uh, 
help out where I can. I mean, I've enjoyed the, uh, you know, being part of the missions committee, just helping, any, doing anything I can to help the teams go, you know, try and get supplies for the Haiti trips or, uh, or organizing the uh, Camp Allendale workday. So I just enjoy just, just helping out wherever I can. Excellent, excellent. I know those Camp Allendale trips have been right up your alley. All those work days have been good. Yes. One more thing. One more thing that I want to mention, not not to sound boastful, but besides the the how I feel about my gift of teaching kids, yeah. I also feel like um, the Lord has blessed me with the gift of exhortation. I feel like I'm I'm a very encouraging person, and um, I I really get joy out of encouraging people and giving them words of comfort and just trying to be there for people. Um, you know, I, I feel like I'm very patient and a very good listener. So. Those would be my two. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Dan, I'm going to go right back to you now, and I want to ask uh, this question number 13 we have here. How, Dan, how would you handle, as an elder, how would you handle a Christian who is in sin? I asked Doug to ask that question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, Matthew 18 um, explains that very well, very clearly. Matthew 18, uh, 15 through 17. Um, the first thing that we should do is approach that person in private um, and always in love, always to restore that person and just talk to them and let them know that, that you feel like there's some sin, whether it's against you or maybe somebody else. Um, and the Bible says that if he hears you, you've gained a brother. And I think that's very important. Um, the second thing, if, if he doesn't hear you, would be to take one or two witnesses with you and again, approach that person and uh, hopefully talk some sense in, to them and explain to them biblically, biblically why it may be wrong what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then lastly, if that doesn't work, um, we're instructed to bring it before the church. And um, again, the point is never to embarrass somebody, um, but it's to restore them and hopefully bring them back to um, where they need to be. That's good. Great answer. Great answer. Uh, Dave, let me, uh, let me go to you here. We have uh, question 16. Uh, if every member of the board uh, seemed to be of one accord and you differed, how would you respond to a situation like that? Well, a lot of that depends on the question. I mean, if it was something that I felt was, uh, was if they were in a, against the biblical standards, then I would, I would definitely stand my ground. And I mean... You would have to use the, the same principles that Dan was talking about. You know, you'd have to take one or more people and go to the elders and, and that type of thing if you felt it was non-biblical. But I, it would be hard for me, it would be hard for me to imagine these guys taking a non-biblical stance and, uh, and, uh, and not agreeing on, you know, and all agreeing on that we should take a non-biblical route. And so if all of them, I mean, not, we don't all agree on everything. And um, I mean, if they all ag- agreed in one thing, I would probably rethink my position. <laughs> or I would, I would go along with it if I felt it was still biblical, if it was just an honest difference of opinion. Yeah, that's a good answer. I mean, there are times where, you know, you, you stick your stake in the ground, and as Dave said, those, those have to be a, a pretty significant biblical issue to hold your ground and to hold, hold your place. But more or less, I think that uh, we have a spirit of unity on this elder board, so uh, it's, uh, it's good to have these guys coming on board with it. Uh, all right, Dan. Uh, and by the way, if you, if you did not get a chance to turn in your question, go ahead and slip your hand up. One of the ushers will come by, and we, we still have time to collect a few more questions. So if you haven't turned it in, you can still get it up here. Dan, I'm going to ask you question uh, 25 now. Dan, 
What is the Bible? And how do we know that the Bible is from God? Well, the Bible is God's word. It's the word that he spoke to us. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is inspired by God. Um, 2 Peter um, 1 also talks about um, how holy men of God um, wrote the word as they were inspired. Um, so I think that's how that we know it's from God. Um, other ways that we know that it's from God is by fulfilled prophecy. Um, you can look at Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9 about the Messiah, about the coming Lord. Um, I think also if we think about a lot of the authors um, that wrote some of these books, uh, Paul and some of the others, um, they, they wrote these books knowing that it was a death sentence. Mm. They knew that they were probably going to be killed for what they were doing. Um, and the old saying, people don't die for a lie, is very true. I mean, they would not have gone to the extent that they did um, if they didn't believe what they were writing. Yeah. So I think that um, knowing that and knowing that um, the extent that they went to to not only uh, hear God's word, but to write it down and to live it out um, no matter what happened is, I think, an important aspect. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Dave, how about, uh, let's go to question uh, 30. What are the, some of the methods that you would use as you open up the Bible? What are some of the methods you use to interpret the Bible? How do you approach interpreting the Bible? When I open the Bible, I, first of all, I pray for the, uh, the Holy Spirit to, uh, to teach me from it. But there are a lot of tools you can use. I mean, you, the commentaries, you try and take into account the original languages, the, uh, the historical context. You, try, you make sure you compare Scripture with the whole of Scripture. You, you may look at for all the passages on a certain topic so you can understand that topic. But, uh, but those are the ways I would uh, Excellent. I approach it. Excellent. All right. Uh, and by the way, if you guys ever want to chime in on questions, you're welcome. So if you, if you ever want to join in, Dan, go ahead, or Dave, vice versa. So if you guys got something to go along with that. Yeah, um, I mean, definitely for me, prayer, mm. and to ask for understanding, and also to, to look at what you're reading and compare it to other scripture. Mm. And also, perhaps if you're reading a certain passage, you know, I think it really helps to go back and read what's before that to really understand what's going on previously um, Keep to give a context. better understanding. Yeah, yeah. excellent. Uh, let's go to, uh, let's see here. We've got, trying to pick here. How about question 35? Uh, Dan, going to you here. Uh, this is a difficult one. Question 35 is a difficult one. How, Dan, uh, do you understand where it says in Scripture that Jesus is the firstborn? Uh, many, as, as many of you know, many cults, uh, and aberrations of Christianity, they look at the phrase firstborn and they say, well, aha, Jesus was created because it says he was the firstborn. How do you understand the term firstborn, that Jesus is the firstborn or only begotten Son of God? Well, the way that I understand it, the way that Scripture um, tells us, is it doesn't mean that he's the oldest. It means that he's the most highly prized, the most highly valued the one to give the honor. Uh, a good example of, of that would be Genesis 48, where Jacob gave special favor to Ephraim over Manasseh, even though Manasseh was his oldest son, was his firstborn son. Um, 
Great answer. Um, so if you look at Genesis 48, there's a, it's a fascinating story how he lays hand on the, on the secondborn and gives him the firstborn blessing. So excellent, excellent answer. Uh, let's see here. This person's got question 47. So question 47 to you, uh, Dave. Ooh, this is a tough one. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Dave? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Can you explain that one to us? Uh, I will try. Um, <laughs> in Mark chapter 3, let me just turn there. Bibles, and uh, you can turn along alongside with them. Matthew chapter, oh, excuse me, Mark chapter 3. 3. Chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, there's a, the verse in question is, but as where Jesus says in verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So it's one of the controversies in the Bible. What is this eternal sin that, that they can't be forgiven of? And it's, it's something that a lot of people wonder about. But I think it's, if you look at the whole verse, what is happening here is Jesus is performing miracles before the scribes. Hmm. And what happens is they attribute those miracles to Satan. They deny that the miracles are from God. They say they're from Satan. And so what Jesus is saying to them, and I believe this is just, you know, people are always trying to wonder, what is that eternal sin that we can commit that we can't be forgiven from, that this passage is talking about? But what it's talking about, I believe, is just that specific instance. That sin was so egregious that they were standing right there with the Son of God, and they're seeing him perform miracles, and they're saying, those miracles are from Satan. Hmm. And it, and it, verse, verse 30, I think, confirms that. Because at the end of the verse, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And it says, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So I think it's, it's just being that instance, those scribes are so far gone that they, can, that they can say at that point that these are not from God or from Satan. If they're saying he has an unclean spirit, then, then they're just too far gone. Amen. That's a great, that, that was a great answer. Thank you, Dave. Excellent. Uh, Dan, I'll turn it over to you again. This is question uh, 41. How has the Holy Spirit worked differently from the Old Testament to the New Testament? How has the Holy Spirit worked differently? Well, there's definitely two different dispensations. Is that the right word? Yeah. Um, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit could actually be taken away from, from believers. Um, a good example of that is um, David, when he, after he sinned with Bathsheba, um, Psalm 51:11 says that he cried out to the Lord not to take the Holy Spirit from him, mm. because he knew that um, the Holy Spirit had been taken away from Saul, King Saul, um, and he did not want that to happen to him. Um, in the New Testament, once we believe, the, the minute we believe, um, the second we believe, we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, and it's permanent. Bible says we are we are sealed. Uh, he fills us. We're indwelt. So and, and he won't leave us ever. Excellent, excellent answer. And spinning off that question, uh, Dave, I'll turn to you. Question 43. Tell us what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and what benefits does it give to believers? And does it occur uh, at the moment of salvation, or does the baptism of the Spirit occur after the moment of salvation? Uh, some different Christians interpret that differently. How do you understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, I, I turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 
3.16. Okay, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Oops, I'm in 2 Corinthians 3.16. It says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And that's, that's just talking that we are all indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Um, all Christians are. Some people believe in, uh, that, yeah, that it, it occurs after, after you reach a certain point in your spiritual growth or after you uh, have some certain spiritual gift. But I believe that, it's, uh, that it occurs at the point of salvation. And also in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, it says you are all baptized into one spirit. You are all baptized and drink into, by one God, drink of one spirit. And so I, I believe that that, tells, that means that all Christians are baptized by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and indwells them at the point of salvation. Excellent. Excellent answer. That was 1 Corinthians 3.16 yeah. and then also 1 Corinthians 12.13. Very good, very good text for everyone to consider. All right, Dan, let's, uh, let's turn it over to you. Um, let's see here. We're going to go to question uh, 55. How can a person be justified or born again? How can a person be justified or born again? Well, it's actually very simple. Um, John 5.24 says that whoever hears my word and believes has eternal life. Amen. Everybody knows John 3.16, for God so loved the world he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him has eternal life. There's not much else to add to it. That's how we're justified. I like it. I like it. And Dave, tell, I mean, what is faith? What is belief? I mean, a lot of people interpret it differently. Some people, they, they throw in a lot of things in that word faith or belief, uh, things like obedience, things like submission. How do you understand when Paul says we're justified by faith? How do you understand faith? My definition of that is just exactly that. Faith, simple faith, simple belief uh, with nothing added to it. And a lot of we actually attended a church for a short time, and we were stunned that they add, started adding things to faith. They say, faith proved by works. Faith, if you don't have enough works, then that proves your faith is not real. I don't see anything about that in Scripture. I say, I see, you know, the thief on the cross believed, and he was, and he was going to heaven. And I just believe faith means exactly that, simple faith, and it's very dangerous to try and add anything to it. Amen. Yeah. Acts 16.31 when Paul and Silas and the Philippian jailer, um, you know, obviously the Philippian jailer was about to kill himself because uh, he thought that all the prisoners had escaped mm. and there are all the, the prisoners still there and, and uh, he asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Amen. That simple. Right up there in yellow, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. One of the best. One of the best verses in all of Scripture. Dan, I'll spin it back to you. This is a tough one, Dan. You ready for a tough one here? 57, what role does good works play in our salvation? How do you reconcile Ephesians 2 and James 2? And we know in James 2, uh, many, many Christians turn to James 2 where it says faith without works is dead. And they say, see, you must have good works or else you don't have faith. Dan, how do you understand the recon reconciling that by grace we're saved through faith in Ephesians 2, and yet in James 2 it says faith without works is dead? How do you put those two verses together? Well, the Ephesians verse, um, it, it says not by works. It's by grace through faith. Um, and then in James 2, 2 14 through 26, 
um, it's, it's not talking about salvation as far as works. Um, it's talking about we, we were created to do good works, and faith and works should go together, um, but it's not what saves us. Hmm. They complement each other. Excellent. All right. You want to you add something, Dave? Is it still on? <laughs> red. You want red. Okay. It's on? Okay, here we go. What I just, as you turn to James 2, um, the, at the beginning of that passage, James 2.14, it says, What use is it, my brethren? Mm. And so it tells you right there who he's talking to. He's talking to my brethren. He's talking to Christians. He's not talking to unbelievers saying, uh, you know, saying you're not, if you don't have, if you're, if you don't have works, you're going to hell. He's talking to brethren, saying, saying, what good is your faith? And it says, what use is it? And all the way through, it talks about faith without works is dead, but the word can also be translated useless. And I think by, that, by using that at the beginning of the uh, passage, he's setting the theme that it's talking about useless and not, not uh, saving faith, but, but the worth of the faith. The, or, the profitability or of it. Yeah. Profitability, yes. Excellent, excellent answer. Dave, I'll come back to you here. Two, two people had this one. So question 58 is, Dave, could a Christian sin seriously? Or habitually, and still be a Christian. What if they What if they go on to become a murderer? I mean, can can, a, can someone who comes to faith and then later on commits heinous sin can they still be saved? Yes, I believe they can. I believe that uh, you know they will still have scars. It's like a wound that uh, that heals, and you still have a scar. But in my uh, personal, I'm trying to read through the Bible in a year, and I was, I've been in First Corinthians lately, and it's just been. To me, 1 Corinthians has been fascinating because Paul is writing the, the epistle to the church at Corinth, there is, but there is nothing but trouble. He takes one problem after another. There's all kinds of sin, all kinds of immorality, all kinds of whatever you want. And, and through the whole thing, he, all he talks about is restoring them to faith. There's no mention of if you keep sinning, you're going to lose your salvation. It doesn't say that. He just continues to try and correct them. And there are a lot of verses, too, on eternal security. You know, once uh, Jesus said, no one is able to take them out of my Father's hand in John chapter 10. And so it's just, I believe that eternal security and, uh, and the inability, you cannot lose your salvation. It's a done deal once you're saved. And I think that, that principle is throughout Scripture. Amen. Uh, some more difficult ones here. We've got question 61. Dan, what is the scope of the atonement of Jesus Christ? When Jesus died on the cross... What is the scope of that atonement? Did Jesus uh, just simply pay for the sins of Christians, or did he pay for everyone's sins? How do you understand the atonement? Um, I understand it that he paid for everybody's sins, and I think it's very clear in 1 John 2.2 2, where it says that he was the propitiation. He paid the penalty for our sins, and uh, it was for the whole world, Amen. not for anybody specific. Excellent. Excellent answer. But the question then, Dan, is, well... well I'm going to come back to you on this. If Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world, you cited 1 John 2, 2. You know, he's the propitiation for our sins. Not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. If he paid for the sins of the whole world, then why, aren't everyone, why isn't everyone saved? It, it's a matter of faith. It doesn't really have anything to do with sin. It's a matter of believing. Um, and those who don't believe will be judged one day at the great white throne. All right. So we have we have a couple barriers then to salvation, right? 
What are, what are the barriers to salvation that we have before us? We've got the barrier of sin, and we've got the barrier of faith. Dan mentioned both of them. The barrier of sin and the barrier of faith. The barrier of sin, Dan mentioned, 1 John 2, 2, taken away. And now all that remains is for us to believe in Jesus. Excellent. Dave, Dave were you going to add something to that? I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, I stole your thunder there. <laughs> Let's jump to uh, question, let's see here, 64. 64, Dave, if salvation is a free gift, what motivation is there to obey the Lord? Why should, we, why should we go on to obedience if all we need to do is believe in Jesus? I think there's a, there's a number of motivations to, uh, to obedience in Christ. One, I think you know, the Bible talks a lot, about, a lot about rewards, but I think, too, there's the... Uh, gratitude. You know, God has done that. God sent his son to die for us. I mean, we should just have that gratitude. And also, uh, motivation is our love for other people. Uh, you know, we should want others to be saved. And so we should, we should be obedient to him. I mean, I remember I heard one uh, non-Christian parent of mine saying, if I believed what you believed, I'd be out on the freeway flagging down cars and tell them. Mm-hmm. And so that, not that we should do that, but, uh, you know, it should be our motivation. Even when you think of that we have this good news, eternal, uh, eternal salvation, that we should be motivated just by the fact of that, our love for our unbelieving friends. That's a great answer. Just Dan, did you want to add? That, yeah, um, what Dave said is exactly what, what I would say. And one other thing I think we should remember, ho- hopefully this applies, um, I think of Hebrews 12 where it says that God is our father. He loves us as a father, but he also disciplines us as a father. And if we're not living in accordance to his will, then we will be disciplined just like I would discipline my own kids. And I do it because I love them, not because um, of anything else. It's because I love them. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Let's jump to uh, question... uh, Let's jump to question 73. This is a tough one. Uh, What... I'll go, I'll go to you, Dan. What do you believe about the gifts of apostleship, prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues, and healing? Now, these are, the, these are called the sign gifts in the Scriptures in the New Testament. Dan, how do you understand the sign gifts or the spiritual gifts that uh, are somewhat uh, more charismatic in nature? How do you understand those gifts today? Are they still in operation? Have they ceased? How do you see it? Well, hopefully you're not going to have to correct me on this one. <laughs> um, I, I believe that gifts like uh, apostle, apostleship and prophecy um, really were for a time period back in, in the, you know, a long time ago, back when the apostles were alive. Um, however, the Bible does say that we should not forbid tongues, so we have to account for that. In 1 Corinthians talks about um, tongues must be interpreted. Mm. Um, it also says that all things must be done uh, in decency and in order mm. in 1 Corinthians. Excellent. Excellent answer. 1 Corinthians 14. Very, very good text that you mentioned there. Dave, did you want to add anything to that? You know, I would just, uh, I would agree with what Dan said. I know just in reading through 1 Corinthians, so one of the issues at the Corinthian church was an over, you know, they put too much emphasis on the sign gifts and the mm. show of it. And he was correcting them, telling them, that uh, you know, to, like that, um, tongues were not as beneficial as something that was prophecy or teaching. Mm. You know, he, he said, "What good is it if you speak in tongues and nobody can understand it?" And, uh, desire more. He said, "Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but desire prophecy or teaching." So mm. tongues were not that beneficial. 
and, and they were being overused. So that's why that verse, do all things with, uh, in order, try and put, restore order to their services and get away from the emphasis on the sign gifts and, and um, more to what was more beneficial. Okay, that's good. So it's, it's a matter of not forbidding it, like it says in 1 Corinthians 14, but doing it with decency and order, with, with a, a measure of order to it, making sure there's interpretation if, in fact, it is uh, going to come out in the church. Excellent, excellent answer. Uh, let's jump to uh, question uh, 77. Uh, Dan, I'll, I'll actually, I think, Dan, you had the last one. Dave, I'll jump to you. Dave, what is the second coming of Jesus Christ, and what, uh, what, what prophetic events does it encompass? What does the second coming look like? Well, the, there are a number of different events leading up to the, uh, the second coming of Christ. I mean, in 2 Timothy, it talks about the apostasy. And then in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, there's the, the passage that we talk about, we refer to as the rapture, or the taking out of the church. And then once the church is taking, taken out of the world, the, uh, then the, uh, the Holy Spirit's taken out, and that restrains, uh, restrains good and just or, or takes the restrainer of good out, and evil runs amok, and then mm. the man of sin is revealed. The whole tribulation starts seven years later. The, uh, you know, the full second coming of Christ, Christ returns in glory in the, the final battle of Armageddon. Um, the millennial kingdom starts after that. We believe in the, as a premillennial church. I mean, there are different views on the um, on the prophetic events, but this is the church that the view that our church holds, and the view that I hold too. And then there's the thousand-year millennium, where we reign with Christ. Then the Satan is is uh, uh, released for a short period of time, rebels. He's judged at the end of the millennium. I mean, it's all all um, delineated in Revelation six through nineteen is the Talks about the tribulation. Uh, Twenty talks about the millennium. The end of twenty, Satan's uh, Satan's released. Then after that, the great white throne judgment. Um, all unbelievers are judged, and then the new heaven and the new earth. Excellent, excellent. That's the way I understand. Dan, it. I'm going to ask you a question about an aspect of the future. Tell us, Dan. Question 81. What is the bema seat judgment of Jesus Christ? When will it occur? And who will be judged at the Bema Seat judgment? Tell us about that. The Bema Seat is um, for Christians, um, for believers. Um, It's uh, very different from the Great White Throne. That's for unbelievers. Um, So it will happen, um, I believe it will happen after the rapture. And it's it's a place where we we will be judged um, based on our faithfulness and what we did for Christ um, while we were here on earth. And it's where we will, we will receive our rewards. All right. Just a couple more here, winding down. Uh, Dave, to you, uh, what is uh, the Great White Throne Judgment? Uh, who will be judged at the Great White Throne Judgment? What will be some of the circumstances surrounding it? Well, the, the Great White Throne Judgment is at the end of the, end of the millennium. It's, it's in Revelation chapter 20, the end of Revelation chapter 20. And it's basically the judgment of all the believers, or unbelievers, excuse me, <laughs> all the unbelievers. And basically, it says that Jesus will open up the book of life, and if their name's not written in it, and if you know, they will be judged by their works, and if, they, if their name is not written in the book of life, they will be condemned. All right, all right. And then I'm going to ask one final question of each of you. To Dan first. Dan, uh, why do you want to be ordained as an elder in the church at Coast Bible Church? Well... A couple of years ago, it was a very overwhelming thing to even think about. Um, 
but I, I really feel like it was God's calling for me. Um, this has been something that's definitely got me out of my comfort zone, and I think that that's what the Lord wanted me to do. Um, I, I just, you know, I've taken a lot from this church. I've been involved in this church a long time, and about five years ago, Arch talked to me a little bit about this someday, and I said, you know, Arch, those are like, those are older guys, and I don't like the term elder, but, you know, and I was, I, I just felt like, no, I, I, I don't, I would never, I'm never going to be ready for that, but over the last several years, the Lord has softened my heart, and, and I knew this day was coming, and uh, we've prepared hard for it, um, but I just felt like it was time for me to take another step and move out of my comfort zone and, um, you know, help however I can. Excellent. Dave, why do you want to be ordained as an elder? Well, I have a similar story to Dan uh, about the term elder. No, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm older than he is. But, um, but when we, Arch, it was the same thing Arch asked me about it when he was still pastor. And at that time, I told him I wasn't really ready for it, but I would consider it in the future. And then uh, Glenn called me a while ago and asked me to come, come to a meeting, see how I liked it. And at first, I, uh, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it. And I remember calling my dad. And he, was, uh, you know, he was an elder at their, at their church. And, and he, I told him, I said, well, I don't know if, if I really want to do it. And he said, well, those are the kind of guys that people want. He said, when people came to them and said, I want to be an elder, I've got everything you need in an elder. He said, those guys, they, they don't want those. <laughs> and so, uh, so, um, so I said, well, you know, that's, you know, I do, I love this church. I mean, this church has done a lot for us. I mean, my kids were, became Christians here and baptized here. And so I appreciate the, the, all the church has done for us. And I just felt that, that if I can help out, I'll want to help out in any way that I can. And, uh, and so that's, that's my, my motivation is just to try and help the church move forward. Amen. Last question. It, it was, this was off the sheet, so I'm sorry about this, and this might be a difficult one, but it, it's a question, and it says, uh, what is God's favorite baseball team to you, Dan? This is important, Dan. This could af- affect your qualification or not uh, well, for eldership. Well, there's here. only one team that has a heavenly name, and it's the Angels. So. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, what's your answer? I am an Angel fan. Also. Angels. All right, let's give these guys a big hand. You guys can uh, have a... Have a quick seat. Go ahead and have a quick seat in the front here. Go ahead and have a seat. Folks, um, did you enjoy that time? Amen. That was, that was a really good time together. Uh, and I, I hope that uh, you got a glimpse uh, today, uh, this morning, of just how hard that these men have prepared for this moment in time. Um, this is not, boy, this was not easy. How many of you would like to just jump up and get grilled on all these questions? Any hands? I mean, uh, not many of us would volunteer to do this, um, to face many in the church and to uh, be grilled about your personal life, your, your testimony, your character, your, uh, how the Lord's working in your life, and also your theology, how you would approach situations in the church. This is not easy. Uh, and it's admirable that these two men have, uh, have done what they've done and have uh, demonstrated themselves uh, here this morning before us and before the Lord. And so I ask, uh, I ask the people of Coast Bible Church, um, are you, uh, do you feel that these two men, Dan Livingston and Dave Bacon, are qualified to be an elder in the Church of Jesus Christ and have they demonstrated to you 
that they, in fact, should be spiritual shepherds of this church? If so, say yes. Yes. Is there any opposed? All right. With that, I'd like to invite Dan and Dave back up, and I would like to ask the elders of the church to come on forward. Al, I'd like you to come as well. Come on forward, Al. And Dave and Dan, I'd like you to just take a knee right in the front here of our, uh, in front of the elders. And I'm going to ask the elders of the church to gather around and to lay hands on these men that we might ordain them to be shepherds of the flock of God and that we might call upon the Lord to use these men in a mighty way to bless Coast Bible Church and to guide us into the future. I'm going to have uh, David and Lou and myself pray. Let's pray together. Father, we are blessed again uh, to hear these men open their lives and their loves and their their desire to serve you, Father. We are blessed to, to get to witness that. Father, I thank you for the work that they've done the last six months and, and uh, their desire to, to do an excellent job. Father, we at this time, we just ask you to put your arms around their families. Uh, Father, when men step forward in leadership, uh, they can be attacked. And Father, we just ask you to protect them and their families at this time and in the weeks and months ahead. Father, we just ask you to give them the wisdom to, uh, to do a job in such a way that the church is uh, blessed at every, every point. And Father, we just uh, give this time to you in Jesus' name. Father God, we thank you for this day and this time together. I thank you for each man here and, and their, de- their dedication to you and commitment to this church. Lord, I just uh, ask for a special blessing on both men, Lord, Dan and Dave. And, uh, Lord, go before them. Uh, Just clear the path for them. Lord, keep them away from the evil one. Protect them and their families, Lord. And uh, as they seek your guidance, uh, and please, uh, we just pray that they continue to seek your will. And, of course, we give you all the glory, all the praise in your son's precious name. Amen. And, Father, Lord, your word has told us, do not lay hands hastily on a man. And so, Father, we, we have not done that. We pray in your eyes, Lord, that you would see the work that these two men have done in preparing to be shepherds of the flock of the body of Christ here at Coast. Lord, these men have trained for this moment. They've gone through inspection, uh, through the qualifications, Lord, of an elder. And they've studied diligently to show themselves approved. And we thank you, Lord, today, hearing from them, explain the word to us. And show us how they would approach different scenarios and settings in leading and overseeing the church. Today, Lord, we are confident that as we lay hands on these men, that we've not done so hastily, but that we've done so with great discernment and judgment. And so now, God, we ask your blessing, your anointing on these men, on Dave and on Dan, that you would anoint them, Lord, as overseers, as bishops of the church, that they would lead, Lord, being led by your Spirit, being under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, and that they would lead and guide and counsel and give wisdom and teaching to this church in a way that would bless so many and edify this body. We pray that you release them now to great ministry. We thank you for their wives, for their children, for their godly example in their families, that their families would would, uh, lift them up in prayer and in support as these men go forth to lead your church into the future. We thank you, Lord, for this time. We give them to you, committing them to you as leaders of this church. In the name of Jesus we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.